Luke 12, 49 through 59. It says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring, give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be divided, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is God's word, and this should be a fun one. So, let's pray together. Father, we just come before you this morning, as Dave reminded us, we come before a holy God, a God who we have no right to come to on our own, dressed in our own filthy rags, but because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have a perfect mediator, we've been clothed in his righteousness, because of him we can stand before you, calling you our Father. And so we come to you with reverence, we come to you recognizing the beautiful and glorious invitation that it is to be your children. And so as we gather this morning, we just uh, say thank you for what you are doing in and through your church. This is not something we have created, but this is something that you have done, something that you have brought about only by a work of your spirit and your decree. Thank you for the work and the advance of your church all across the globe. We think of our, our friends all the way over in the Czech Republic, who I've uh, even already met and have, have gathered and worshipped you, and I just thank you for the work that uh, you are continuing to do to awaken dead hearts in a very dark place, a country that uh, for the most part is turned away and, and, and wants nothing to do with you, and yet there is a remnant that is still faithfully following you, faithfully proclaiming your gospel, and so for them I ask that you would sustain them and grow them and support them. Pray for Zach and Kara Zegan and for the work that they are doing. And I just pray that you would encourage their hearts today and, and guide them as they continue to learn the language, love people well, and invest in the church over there. Think of our brother Matt Scott, who uh, even now is preparing to get on a, on a plane and, 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 and fly over um, into Southeast Asia and be able to spend some time there investing in young leaders, caring for them, supporting them and uh, really helping to support the, the growth of your church in those areas. 
So for all of your servants who are faithfully serving you in all the different corners of this world, we ask that you would protect and preserve and guide them. Pray that you would guide us this morning as we look into your word, as we look into this text that uh, maybe there are some more difficult sayings that Jesus gave to us, but they are still so needed for us. Let us not gloss over these things, but let us take them deeply to heart. Let us learn from them. Let us grow through them. And let us submit all areas of our lives to your lordship. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus, our only Savior. Amen. You can have a seat. Let me ask you, have you ever encountered someone that uh, upon first seeing them, maybe you made certain assumptions about them? But then, uh, very quickly, maybe uh, those assumptions uh, proved to be very untrue. This happened to me in a, a really silly way this summer. Uh, I uh, was, was playing pickleball, it's something I've, I've grown to enjoy doing, and one morning this, this past summer I was playing pickleball with a number of guys, and we were having some good competitive games, and we were down at Twin Silo Park, and sometimes you know, other people will come and, and just kind of uh, show up wanting to get, get involved and get in the game. And so we were there playing, and uh, again, just these four guys, and this uh, little old lady showed up, and uh, uh, I think she was visiting from out of town, but she showed up, and you could tell like she wanted to, wanted to play some pickleball. And uh, the four of us guys were actually being fairly selfish and, and didn't really want to allow her maybe to get involved, uh, didn't want to mess up kind of the the, the good competition that we were involved with, and so uh, we kind of, I think, to one degree or another, you know, just kind of ignored her, her a little bit, but then she, she kind of asked if she could get involved, and a couple of the guys were like, uh, not really, we, we, you know, we're, we're playing on the court, but it's kind of etiquette to let others come in and all, and so I was like, okay, you know, I think we, I think we should let her play, and so, uh, so we uh, invited this, this lady to play. But when, when I saw her, I, I, I certainly assumed that her, uh, her best athletic days were behind her. And uh, I even considered maybe if I should encourage her to go and maybe try the senior center to see if she could find some games there. But, uh, but we, we were trying to be a welcoming pickleball community, and so we invited her into play. And uh, about 20 seconds in, I realized I had greatly uh, uh, misassessed her. Grandma had some serious game. <laughs> she knew how to play some pickleball. And uh, I was just glad that she actually was ended up on my team because uh, she had that ball on a string and could place it anywhere she wanted, and uh, we were able to completely destroy these other guys that we were playing against. So uh, if you ever need a mixed doubles partner, uh, Bernice, uh, I think from Florida, might be available. I don't know. So that's a silly example. Um, but I, I was very wrong about my assessment of, of her and, uh, and, and her skills. And in kind of a similar way, I think this text uh, calls us to see something. I think we see Jesus here in, in this passage wanting to clear up what might be some misguided assumptions about him, about who he is, about why he is there. And I think we see from passages like this that, it, that if people are going to rightly respond to Jesus, then they must fully understand Jesus, both in his person and in his purpose. And so we arrive here at the end of chapter 12 in Luke's gospel as we've been walking through this. And we, we, we see that the scene here is what was told us in, in verse 1. There's a great crowd that is gathered and Jesus has been instructing his disciples here. And he has offered them warnings about avoiding hypocrisy, 
that they may face things in the coming days that are going to challenge their allegiance to him. And so he, he's, he's told them to avoid the, and, and not give in to the fear of man. He's called them to be on guard against covetousness, to not be anxious as they entrust themselves to their father. And last week, Beck helpfully walked us through this uh, previous section that really calls us to, to be ready, to live with intentionality and purpose as if, as if we are ready for the master to return. And so here in these final uh, few verses, we're going to see where Jesus calls his audience to accurately recognize his purpose and the significance of the current moment and the need for an urgent response to this. And so if, you, if you're one that likes to kind of know where we're going in the, in the roadmap here, we're going to follow uh, through kind of these three sections that are probably even highlighted in your Bible. Verses 49 to 53, we will see the danger of wrong assumptions. In verses 54 to 56, we will see the need for a spiritual forecast. And then in verses 57 to 59, we will see the urgency to settle our debts. So let's walk through this passage and see what we can learn from Jesus. First, we see the danger of wrong assumptions. If you ask the average person on the street, what was Jesus' purpose in coming to the earth? What do you think you'd hear? Probably get a variety of answers. Maybe, you know, some would say, well, he just came to, to, to heal people and to uh, uh, provide some, uh, some uh, great uh, moral teaching and instruction. From others, you'd get maybe a, a clear answer of he, he came to die for sinners. But the interesting thing about this text is Jesus tells us three reasons for his coming. He tells us directly why he came, and I'm pretty sure that there's a good chance that if you ask somebody, none of these things would be on that list. But he gives us these three reasons. He says he came to cast fire on the earth. He came to undergo a baptism. And he came to divide. Why does Jesus use these images to describe his mission and his purpose? Why does he use this language that to us can sound rather harsh, kind of extreme? Not maybe the image of Jesus we always often associate with him. But I believe he uses language like this and puts it in these terms. Because I think that Jesus wants to make sure that they don't have the wrong assumptions about who he is and why he's there. Because if they do, then they may end up actually missing the very thing that he came to offer them. And so in this setting, again, we see this, that there, there are thousands of people who are gathered here, along with Jesus' closest followers, his disciples. And what's interesting in the Gospels is how you watch these crowds. We see the crowds mentioned over and over throughout the Gospels. And as you, as you see the crowds, you're, you're often kind of forced to ask, you know, who are all these people? You know, they, they, they gather regularly to hear him teach and even to receive healing from him. But the question ultimately becomes, are, are, are these actual followers of Jesus? Why are they there? The crowds can tend to come and go, and it's unclear if they truly understand Jesus' purpose or if they're there just for maybe the show. You know, certainly maybe they, they just want to see these miracles that they've heard about. Because after all, it's, it's pretty cool to see a skin disease healed in front of you, right? And if you're sick, 
to even be healed by this man if it's possible. That's something that you could use in your life. Maybe they're just fascinated by his teaching. This guy is gifted in rhetoric and, and is teaching things that they haven't ever heard and kind of challenging even the, the religious leaders of the time. And so they're just there to kind of hear Jesus' teaching. Or maybe they just want to kind of watch the debate that's breaking out between Jesus and the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. Like many on social media, maybe they're just there for the comments section. Maybe they, 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 they just have come to watch and see what Jesus is all about and what he's going to do next. But what we see in the crowds and what we see ultimately in Jesus' disciples at times is that there are certain assumptions that begin to form around why he's there and what he's going to do. And Jesus here offers a correction that his purpose is not dependent on their expectations of him. And it's certainly not limited to the things that they like about his ministry. And so he shares with them that he has a divine end times purpose for which he has come and from which he will not be deterred. And so the ultimate question becomes, will they continue to follow him once they fully understand what he is actually going to do. You know, I think it's incredibly common kind of in our society today and even, sadly, and many times within the church where we, we, we like to highlight the words and actions of Jesus that kind of uh, appeal to our modern culture. And then we can conveniently sometimes exclude the parts that are a bit more offensive that are a bit more shocking. We're not quite sure what to do with some of the difficult sayings of Jesus. And we can tend to like an unoffensive Jesus. We prefer a filtered Jesus. Because after all, it's, it's easier to highlight him as the guy who just loves everyone. He's the guy that parties with sinners. He touches the outcast. He confronts the religious establishment. He breaks social barriers. He has time for the little kids. Right? Those are the images of Jesus that we love. We like to think of the Jesus as the guy who just washes people's feet. Because after all, he gets us. And the reality is, all of those things are true. Jesus' life, his actions, Everything is, is a beautiful example of true humanity. He, he, he does offer us an example to follow. And how he lives and how he engages with, with the outcasts and with the marginalized is certainly something that should challenge us in the way that we think about those around us. But there is a massive danger in assuming that we understand Jesus from a limited selection of inspiring narratives about him. Yes, in his full humanity, he gets us. He entered into the human condition, into everything that we experience. He was tempted like us <laughs> at all points, and yet was still without sin. So yes, he gets us in his humanity, but the ultimate question has to be, do we truly get him? Do we understand him what he has actually come to accomplish. 
Because if we are going to know Jesus, we have to understand all of Him. Because otherwise, we may end up just worshiping a caricature created in our image rather than the incarnate Son of God. And so what does Jesus tell us that He came to do? He said, I came to cast fire on the earth and I wish that it were already kindled. What is He speaking of here? Some, some would see the fire that is described here as kind of a, a dividing effect um, or a purifying aspect. Um, but I think the most faithful recognition of the image of fire throughout the, the, the Scriptures is that of, of judgment. Jesus is saying that there is a judgment coming. And it's His coming that actually is going to light the match of the ultimate judgment to come. That's why He came. As much as He, he preached his, the care for people, as much as He healed, His ultimate purpose had something that was far greater, pointing to something far beyond and something He came to solve that we have to recognize. He secondly said this. He declares, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And you may be thinking, well, wasn't Jesus baptized uh, at the beginning of the story? And you would be correct. So he must be speaking of something different than just his water baptism by John in the River Jordan. But his use of baptism here, I, I think, is, is the language of being overwhelmed, of being completely immersed in something. And here it is clear that I believe that Jesus is, is speaking about what he is going to go through. How he will be in the figurative waters of judgment as he goes to the cross. I believe that he is foreshadowing his death to come. And his use of baptism speaks of being overwhelmed with the waters of judgment. And he describes also the current state that he's in as he anticipates this. He says, I am in such distress until this is accomplished, until this is fulfilled. You see, the path of the cross for Jesus was a heavy burden. But it was something that he set his face toward. He understood his purpose and the plan of redemption that was established before the foundation of the world and he would not be deterred. That was where he was going and that was where he was heading. And he wants his followers to understand that. And it was in this baptism that Jesus would fully bear the wrath of God's justice against human sin and human rebellion. You know, there are some people who dislike the idea of a, uh, the idea that Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross. And they, they, they kind of see that as some unjust image of cosmic child abuse or something like that. And so in, in many ways to kind of filter Jesus a little bit, they like to see what Jesus did on the cross as simply a, a good example for us. That he, he offered us, you know, a way that he would win our hearts over just through his, his amazing love. Or that he would, you know, kind of overcome the, the powers of darkness in this cosmic war. But when we ask, what did Christ actually accomplish on the cross? How does the atonement actually work? Certainly, there are, there are different aspects and facets of the atonement that are, that, that are true and that we want to affirm that, that Jesus did win victory over, over the powers of darkness. 
Yes, certainly His love was displayed to us on the cross. But we have to realize this, that the central theme of the atonement that we must not remove, that cannot be sacrificed, is the substitutionary death of Christ who died in our place, bearing the just wrath of God that we rightly deserved. And it is this baptism of justice that Jesus is telling us that He came to accomplish. And apart from the atoning work of Christ, all the images and all the acts of love that that, that He did for people ultimately can't accomplish our redemption. Our redemption is only accomplished through His sacrificial, substitutionary death in your place. You see, the Gospel is not just that God loves you. As true as that is. But the Gospel is that God loves you and He did something about your condition. For God so loved the world that He gave That He gave His Son so that anyone who believes in Him would not have to perish, but could have eternal life. This is what Jesus is foreshadowing for us. Saying, I have a baptism that I'm heading towards. Don't forget that. As cool as this is, and as amazing as as what's going on, and my popularity, and you're here following me, and this this is great, and you see my good example, watch me as I continue to head towards that cross. He then offers a third reason for his coming. And he asks a rhetorical question. And the question is this. And if you're like me, you may think that you automatically know the answer. He says, do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? Well, you might respond like I did when I initially read this. Yes, Jesus. Yes, that is exactly what I thought you came to accomplish. You know, if this was a Sunday school question, I think I'd be raising my hand saying, yep, I know the answer to this. If you're on Jeopardy, you know, the TV show Jeopardy, uh, the game show, and there was a category Jesus, and one of the, one of the questions, you know, for a thousand points, dollars is, uh, what did Jesus come to accomplish? I think I would, I would, I would hammer that buzzer and I would be like, Alex, the answer is, what is peace? Right? Like, like that's what the angels declared, right? When they were there, peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. Jesus is the, is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that he would be and come as the Prince of Peace. So yes, I think peace is the correct answer. And Jesus says, eh. No. Rather, I came to bring division. What is he doing? Is, is, is he just being kind of clever here? Is he just trying to be provocative? I think he is using a form of Jewish argumentation that's intended to kind of shock the reader. But his point is not to deny that he does bring peace, but he wants to help them understand the way in which true peace will be found. Because peace will not be found for everyone. For those who reject him and deny who he is, there will not be peace. But the peace that he comes isn't just kind of this just general uh, sense of well-being amongst humans, but this is a peace that can only be found when a relationship with God is restored. And so he says, 
No, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. And that division, he says, will be experienced even in the closest of human relationships, even within the family itself. And here he draws on language and imagery from Micah chapter 7. But here Jesus is emphasizing for us the cost of discipleship. The cost of following Him. It is that which will divide. Choosing to follow Christ will create a fracturing between those who submit to His Lordship and those who don't. Some of you in this room have actually experienced this very literally. The reality of this is felt in your life regularly. That your faith and your decision to follow Jesus has strained your very relationships. It's put you at odds with your family. Maybe your mother or father who just don't understand the choices that you're making and why you'd be throwing your life away on these things. Maybe it's fractured your relationships with even some of your closest friends, those who used to love to hang out with and, and party with, but now your values are so diametrically different that there's tension and distance between those relationships. Maybe with your coworkers, your, 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 role, your, your life as a Christian just puts you in an odd place. And there's a clear divide amidst your values and what, what, what you long for and those around you. There is a conflict inherent in what Jesus does. And all throughout the gospel, we see him continually uh, drawing this line. Kind of dividing things. Those who truly follow him and recognize him and those who don't. And there is a necessary division that ultimately will occur throughout the world. We see this over and over again. We see this even escalating, I think, even in our own cultural moment. But the reality is that Jesus calls us to a life of discipleship. And when he calls us to this high cost, he reminds us over and over again that it is worth it. It is worth it to follow him. To take up the cross and, and follow him no matter where it leads. To surrender everything to his lordship, regardless of the impact that that has, even in our relationships. And for Jesus to say this to these people, this would be scandalous. Because the family relationships of the day were, were, were different than many times that we experience. Or we create our own lives and we do this, but, 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 but for the, for the, for the, in the Jewish setting, the relationships were so tightly knit that families stayed together, that they depended on each other, they lived together. So this kind of division that Jesus is speaking of would, would, be, would be shocking, would be scandalous. But he says this is ultimately what happens. There is no neutrality when it comes to declaring who Jesus is. You're either with him, or ultimately, you choose against him. And Jesus wants to make this very clear, that they don't have the wrong assumptions about him, because if they have the wrong assumptions about who he is and what he's come to accomplish, then they may actually miss out on what he actually came to give them. The next section of the, of the passage, in verses 54 to 56, we see a need for a spiritual forecast. Jesus calls to the crowd and he tells them that they need not just a meteorological forecast, but a spiritual one. He says to them, he says, you know quite well how to read the weather patterns. He says, you see the clouds in the west and you know that there's rain coming for them sweeping off of the Mediterranean. 
Or if the wind starts picking up from the south, then as it often does, a scorching heat wave is going to come from the desert, and it's going to get very hot. So as you guys know how to, how to read the signs of the weather patterns around you and know what's coming, and then he challenges them. He calls them hypocrites. He says, you can interpret the signs of the weather, but you have no clue what is happening right in front of you. He's challenging the crowd to say, you should recognize me for who I am. They should understand the significance of what is taking place through his ministry. And they continued not to see it. How should they have seen it? I mean, it's the same thing that Jesus told to the followers of John the Baptist when they came to Jesus back in chapter 7. They came to Jesus and they said, hey, hey Jesus, John wants us to ask, are, are you the one who we should expect? Are you the one who, who should be here or is that somebody else? And Jesus' response to them was, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Everything was very clear through the life and the ministry of Jesus before them. But would they see it? Would they read Him and His ministry just like they do the weather? What about you? You can read the weather. For us, maybe we don't look outside as much, but we pull up our app. Got to see what's up. Although, most of the time, that doesn't really help us much either. So, sometimes it's easier just to look at the, look at the hills and see if it's going to snow or not. Um, but we can, we can read the, the, the weather patterns. And we can look at the 10-day forecast. But how good are you, are you at discerning your own spiritual condition? The condition of your heart before God. You recognize Him for who He truly is. You recognize your, your desperate need of Him. Maybe if you're a Christian, you've been following Jesus for a long time, do you understand even the, the, the spiritual climate of your own life by what it looks like? By the way you follow Him? How seriously you take obeying Him, submitting your life to Him, Do you, do you take a spiritual forecast of your life? Or do you get to kind of choose to do whatever you want? To presume upon His grace? To live as you want to live? Will we recognize what He has come to accomplish and what He has offered to us? The last section in verses 57 to 59. Jesus gives this little story. And it, it calls us to the urgency to settle our debts. There's an urgency to settle our debts. He begins, as he often does, with a question. He says, if you could discern the time, then, then you would realize what's taking place and the urgency of the matter. But he says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? He's basically saying, you know what you should do. Why don't you do it? Why don't you respond? And then he tells them what is functionally a, a very short parable. And as Beck helpfully reminded us last week, anytime we encounter a parable, it's actually pointing us to a far greater reality, something far deeper. And so he tells them this. He says in verse 58, As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, 
So basically, if you have a debt against you and the person to whom you owe money uh, wants to uh, call you on that debt and say, hey, you need to pay up. And ultimately, he's going to drag you before uh, the legal process to get this taken care of. Jesus says this. He says, if you're in that situation and you're being, being, being you, you got to meet the judge, you got to go into the courtroom and defend yourself. He says this. He says, you might want to consider squaring things up on the way. Take care of that debt on the way. Don't wait until you get to the judge. If you wait until you get into the courtroom, it might not work out for you very well. Don't think that you could just get there and that, that, that your debt is so small that he'll just ignore it or it's, it's not a big deal and that you can kind of wiggle your way out of this because when you stand before the judge, that ultimate decision is going to be made and you may ultimately find yourself declared guilty, sent off to the officer, and ultimately thrown into prison. And he ends by saying, if that ultimately happens, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So what is... What is Jesus picturing for us here? I believe the greater reality which we must all realize is that there is a judge before whom which all of us will ultimately stand. And if we stand before him with a debt against us, that righteous judge will of necessity have to cast us into an eternal prison. And just for clarity, when it says you will never get out until you have paid the last penny, there is there is not the indication that, oh, you can, you can stay in jail until you just can kind of pay that off as though there's some kind of purgatory or sense of, of, of paying that off and then you'll get out eventually. No, the language of the imagery is that when it says down to the very last penny, it was the smallest, uh, currency, uh, the smallest form of currency that was known. And he's ultimately saying, no matter how little you owe, you will never be able to pay this off. So the question ultimately is, if we take Jesus on his advice to settle our debts before we get to the judge, the question is, how do we do that? How do we settle our debts? Some of us might think, well, I don't think I really have too many debts. I'm a fairly good person, you know, and, you know, I've done some poor things, but I have enough other good things that in the end, I think it'll all kind of balance out and, you know, we'll be all square in the end. It's not the... Not the teaching of the, of, the, of the Word of God. Because we all have incurred debts against a holy and righteous God. We have an infinite amount of debt that we can never pay off. Romans says that, that, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So if we all have debts that we have to pay, how do we take care of those things? How do we do it? How do we settle those things before we get to the judge? Friends, the only way to take care of our debts is by having them paid for us. And that is what God did through Jesus on the cross. Colossians tells us this very clearly. It says, God has forgiven us all our trespasses. And how did he do it? He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you want to square up your debts with God, the only place that you can do that is at the cross 
The place where he declared that it was paid. Do you feel the urgency of this text? This is kind of a heavy text. But maybe you've been considering this step in your own life. To truly receive Christ. But you've been wrestling with through what, what that might mean. What are the implications of that? And you're not quite ready to give up maybe the things that you love the most. You figure that maybe you'll just uh, kind of live your life the way you want to right now and eventually maybe someday you'll get serious about this Jesus stuff. Maybe down the road. Will you heed the words of Jesus? Will you take seriously the call to settle your debts before you find yourself before the judge? Would you come to him today? In fact, there's actually a big tank right behind me full of water. Love to see you be baptized. In just a, a few minutes, we're going to have three, three men who stand up here and declare that they are followers of Jesus. And they're going to enter the waters of baptism. This beautiful symbol and imagery where they will be dunked in the water and come back. And it's this, 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 this beautiful symbol of what God has accomplished in their lives. You see, the reality is the judgment is coming. In fact, judgment has already fallen. It fell on Jesus at the cross. He faced His baptism in the judgment of the cross. He went through it. And He went through the true baptism of death so that your baptism, so that my baptism, so the baptisms that we see this morning have to just be symbols of what God has already accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's been said, I don't know if it's actually true, but it makes for a good illustration, that if you're, if you're ever caught in a forest fire, that probably the safest place that you could find, the place, safest place you can get to, if you can get there, is to get to the already burned ground around the fire. Because there's nothing else left to burn. And the only way, friends, to escape the coming judgment of God is to run to the scorched ground at the foot of the cross. So everything was paid. Everything was dealt with. Your sins and mine, covered, atoned for, paid. Would you run to the scorched ground at the cross? Find forgiveness. Find healing. Find reconciliation with your Creator. Yes, we will face that judge one day. But we don't have to face Him with all of our debts standing over us. Because of Christ, because of the cross, we can stand before Him declared free, not guilty. But it is the only place that we can find that forgiveness. Would you turn to Him this morning if you haven't? Christian, would you believe this this week? Would you live as one who has been fully forgiven? Get off the treadmill of, of, of your own life and your own efforts and look to Jesus afresh every day. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. Turn back to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. 
Thank you for these honest words. Let us not believe that we can just get by with just the salve of shaping you into our image, what makes us feel better. But let us understand you fully for who you truly are, of why you came. The path you walked was not easy. You bore the distress and the burden of facing the cross all through the years of your ministry. And yet you were not deterred. You didn't give in. You didn't walk away. You didn't abandon the calling. But instead, you set your face, you set your affection on us to win us, to accomplish our redemption so that we could be made right with you. Let us believe these things. Let us know you. And I just pray that uh, this morning we would just be able to worship you because of what you have done for us. You are such a good and great father to us. And we have a glorious Savior. So we say thank you and we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.